0: Welcome to Catholic Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 9 through 12 with Pastor John King. Good morning everybody. We are going to continue in 1 Thessalonians. We will be, as you can see, verses 9 through 12 of chapter 4 today. Chapter 4 is the application phase of this letter, really, really, where the rubber meets the road. If we've been, as we've been going through this letter, we've been learning about Paul's uh, prayer pattern. And we, we, we recall if you've been keeping up with the teaching and, and the notes, taking notes perhaps, there were three things that Paul prayed for, which is a, a real re- good representation Uh, our description of a sanctified lifestyle. Uh, You may recall, it was first of all, increased personal fellowship with God. You know, taking that time to be with the Lord, and to study His Word, and to have your prayer time. And then the next one is uh, increased love for others. And then last week, we kind of honed in on this idea uh, of increased personal holiness. And so you can see that a life in Christ, a Christian walk, is a steady incline. You know, it may be a little bit like the stock market, right? You have some rough years, but it's always going on the incline. It's always going on the up. And so Paul is encouraging them, basically saying, hey, you guys got a wonderful church. You have a wonderful thing going up there. You're withstanding all the temptations. You're withstanding all the pressure from society. You're showing love for one another. And so Paul is simply saying now, just increase. Just keep moving in that direction. You know, you cannot, you cannot love enough. You can't fit, get closer to God. You can't uh, do better in your personal holiness and your walk. So he's really encouraging them. Uh, chapter 4, as you read, if you can see it there in verse 1, it began with a challenge. Paul said, finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. So it answers the question as we go through this, how can I live a life and walk in a manner that pleases Him? when I'm being told by the enemy, perhaps, that I don't please God, or somebody's trying to pressure me into being the person that God has not called me to be, and trying to lay guilt trips on me. How do I live a life that pleases God? And that's a question we all have to wrestle with. It's a question that we all need to obey. And so he, he said last week in verse 2, he says, uh, it's not like we lack the information. He says, for you know what commandments we gave through the Lord Jesus. And then, of course, if you uh, heard last week's message, you know that it was really centered around this issue of uh, what you see in verse 3. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. And, you know, this is sort of like the last thing that he listed, you know, this personal holiness. But now he's, he's come back to it, and he wants to talk about that first. And again, this is a lot from last week, a little bit of a review from last week. Why is this topic being addressed first? And I believe it's because of the pervasive and destructive consequences of pornea, sexual sin, fornication, uh, sexual immorality. Now in case you missed the definition, it's a very simple definition. It's any and all sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman. That covers it all. That covers the whole thing. It's very simple. You don't have to look up the meaning of words to understand that. But it's one thing to define sin and to highlight the consequences. Because after all, in Thessalonica, much like our day, sexual immorality was a given. I mean, their whole religious system and all the idols and the things that they worshipped were based off of increasingly depraved sexual activity. And so we see it in our society. I mean, I, you know, it's all around. It's, the, it's on every advertisement now. It's on every TV show. It's on every movie that Disney makes. They bring in this sexual immorality. And they try to dress it up to look normal. And so they, they continue to try and, you know, brainwash us, Will, to, to, to say, well, it's a given in our society too. But remember, Christianity changed society. People were getting saved, and they put that, path, that, that lifestyle behind them. And so, you know, in case you missed it last week, Paul gave so much uh, resource for us. He wanted to remind us that we have the ability, because of the Holy Spirit, to say no to those things. We aren't slaves to sin anymore. We need to understand the need to cultivate a different passion than what the world has. And, And, you know, a passion more to know God. And we also need to make that loving choice not to take advantage of others because the Lord's an avenger. He he takes this very seriously. If you look back in verse 6 of chapter 4, he says, let no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this manner. Why? Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, and he has forewarned you. We've forewarned you and testified. And this is reinforced when we recognize that God himself has called us, personally called, each one of us to a life of holiness. You have an invitation from God to increase in personal holiness. What an invitation. It's not something we should turn our noses up at, for sure. And we know that we have to choose it on a daily basis. We read uh, from the scriptures this morning about the life of immorality versus the life of, of godliness. And so each one of us has to take that path every single day. Well, today we see Paul, he's once again you know, urging. He's begging. He's beseeching. He's using very strong language in the Greek. He's asking them in the church for two more areas. He's like, stick with me. There's two more areas I want to cover here that you need to increase in. And that is a brotherly love and an orderly life. There needs to be, for you and I, a healthy balance between our love for one another and our witness to the culture around us. You know, we don't want to be unbalanced Christians, too heavy in one area and too light in the other. I like what Chuck Swindoll says about this. He says, think about a few, and then he says, a few either or extremes that should be both and. In other words, we said it before, we can walk and chew gum. I may not be able to chew gum or walk or even talk very well right now, but we need to be able to walk and chew gum. So there's a lot of both and balances but he, he he says it very accurately. He says, but we're either so zealous for the lost that we forget the need for prayer and personal Bible study. Or we're so committed to the personal disciplines of the Christian life that we forget about the, the lost souls around us. Or we're either so zealous for the purity of the church that we're willing to split over every difference or infraction. Or we're so bent on the unity of the church that we're ready to give up doctrinal commitments without much of a fight. We're either so confident and self-assured that we run ahead and make a mess of things instead of waiting on God. And we're so afraid of risk and the walk of faith that we become dull and visionless. Unable to lift a finger in the Lord's work. And I, I agree with that. I think what he says, there's a lot of truth in what he says. You know, we often use the phrase that as Christians, we are to live in the world, but not be of the world. Now, that's not a direct Bible quote. That comes from a lot of passages. John 17, 14, and 15, Jesus said, I have given, this is Jesus's prayer to the Father for the church and for the disciples. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world but I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you, you should keep them from the evil one. So we are, you know, the, the, the Lord is saying, look, you're going to live in this world, but you don't need to be of this world. And he's asking God the Father to protect us from the evil one. And that's, our, that's a, a pressing need for all of us, that we would seek God's help and call on his protection from spiritual darkness and spiritual warfare. So we're talking about a lot of the, you know, the idea that we need to increase, but how do we do this? And that's what today's message is going to cover. How do we b- behave properly toward outsiders while maintaining this sanctified, set-apart, holy lifestyle prescribed in those verses that we just read last week, verses 1-8? And that's a fair question. So today's passage is going to help us to live out this calling. And if you're taking note, we're going to notice that we need to walk to please God. It's going to involve four practical duties. A very short section of Scripture today. First of all, growing in love. That keeps coming up, doesn't it? Growing in love. And then the next, number two, is to aspire or to aim or to study to live a quiet life. Study to live a quiet life. And then third is check this out, mind your own business. You see it, you're reading it. And then fourth is, uh uh-oh, work with your own hands. Those kind of things we can take. Those are practical applications to a life in Christ. So let's read it. He says in verse 9, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write you, for you yourselves are taught by God, to love one another, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. Let's bow our heads for a quick prayer. Father, we thank you for your word once again. Uh, Lord, it it can do many things to us. It can get us all uh, convicted, Lord, and and maybe that's what you want to do today. You want to convict our hearts. Your word can cleanse us. Your word can encourage us. Your word can point us in the proper path and the proper way to walk through this life. And so, Lord, as people of faith, we believe that. And so that's why we're here to study your Word today, for that very purpose, is that we all desire in our hearts, Lord, to please you, to live a life that pleases you. And it's our response to how you loved us, and how you've been so patient with us, and how you gave your son Jesus to die on our behalf, that you have set a place Apart for us in heaven. You've gone to heaven. Jesus has said him. He's gone to prepare a place for us. And so Lord, it's our responsibility as well to live a life that pleases You. So Father, we just come before You with that, that desire in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. So again, walking to please God continuing to grow in love. You guys have probably heard this story. I was just reminded of it. Historically speaking, the great Apostle John lived to be quite an old, to, you know, into his 90s. He lived to be quite, uh, quite a, an, an old man, I should say. And he would be taken into the church. And there were people, you know, they would come to the church there in the Middle East where he was, and they would want to hear this great message from the Apostle John. I mean, after all, you know, this is, this is amazing. You know, think of, he's the author of Revelation. I mean, all the stuff that he's seen. And he, so he would come and, and famously, as history records it, they would bring him up and, and maybe the people were expecting some just really awesome sermon from the Apostle John. But what he would do typically, uh, according to history and tradition, is he would be brought up and he would speak publicly and he would say something very simple. He would say, little children love one another. That's all he would say. Why is that so important? And why do we continue to have to talk about it? Well, it must be because we struggle so much with that. We struggle to love and to care for others. And we will struggle throughout all of our lives. But we need to look at this, loving others as a sovereign gift from God. You know, He doesn't just say, go love everybody and you know, let me know how you did. I'll grade you later. No, He gives us the, the tools. He puts God's, He pours His love in us, and we're going to talk about how we're instructed by God. But he says here, beginning, Paul says in, he says, concerning brotherly love. Now that's, you guys know, that's an interesting word. We have a major city in America called Philadelphia. And so the Greek word Philadelphia means the love of the brothers and sisters. And so if you're watching Sunday football sometime, and those, those Eagles, I mean, they're doing really good this year. Uh, and they'll talk about the city of brotherly love. Uh, and that's sort of a tongue-in-cheek reference sometimes to people who know that city life can be very difficult and very hard and very full of crime and everything else. But he said concerning this special kind of love. Now normally when you would expect to see Christian love spoken in Greek in the New Testament, you would think of the word agape, God's love, agape love. But here he's he's using a very special kind of love. According to John Barry, the Greek word Philadelphia originally referred to the affection among blood relatives. But check this out. Christians adopted this word. They considered themselves to be the family of God. And we talk about brothers and sisters. We refer to one another. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. So it is something that they have appropriated and we continue to do it to this day. You know, in the church, we, we, of course, have blood relatives. Some of us have our own blood relatives here among us. But we are all blood bought relatives of Jesus. No matter what your ethnicity is, no matter what your family heritage is, your country of origin, your social status, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, blood bought relatives. And so Paul's like, I I have no need, or you have no need, that I should write you. I'm not having to really instruct you in this because you're doing such a great job. And he does this because of of what Timothy said. He says this as a result of Timothy's report in chapter 3 when he came back and he gave a wonderful report of how the church was doing, how they were loving one another, and how they really wanted to see Paul and the apostles again. And then he goes on and he says, For you yourselves are taught by God. To love one another. And, you know, you gotta, if you read that passage, you kind of go, okay, taught by God. Oh, that means divinely instructed to love one another. And and immediately you might say, well, how has God instructed us to love one another? And the Bible is complete and full of all the information, again. He's taught us through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit how to love one another. In 1 John 4.19, it says, we love Him because He first loved us. That's how we're being instructed, knowing that. When God the Father gave Jesus to die on the cross for us. We also know in John 13.34, when God the Son gave a new commandment to His disciples. Love one another. And maybe that's why the Apostle John remembered that word love one another at his old age, because he heard it from the lips of the Lord personally. We also see that when God the Holy Spirit poured the love of God into our hearts, when you got saved, Romans 5, 5 says this, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We're not orphans in this area. God has done it. Not only has He given us information on how to live, and not only has He instructed us, but He has poured His love into our hearts. And then He says in verse 10 of our passage today, And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. This is not a church that just stays within its four walls and only has the brotherly fellowship in within the church on a Sunday or the Lord's Day or whatever. Now they're out in their community, despite the persecution. They're out there showing the love of Jesus. It, it extended beyond their local congregation. They were living out what Jesus taught in the Gospel of John. In chapter 13 of John, uh, we see that He had just explained, you remember this, Jesus had just exp- uh, given them the Last Supper. He, taught the, he explained once again that He would be leaving them at the Last Supper. And that He would be crucified and buried before He rose again. And they were getting pretty upset about this. You know, they either, it's like when somebody tells you something, you don't want to hear it, so you ignore it, or you get, you're kind of left with this kind of fear because you don't quite understand it. And He told them, He says, where I'm going, you could not come. And He knew that this would trouble them. And so He gave them a new commandment. So John thirteen thirty four, He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, and you also love one another. They would need to stick together in the coming days, the weeks and the years. Many of them, most of them would be martyred for the, for the faith. And then he instructed them concerning their witness to others outside of the faith. In verse 35, John 13, he says, By this love, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. One writer put it this way. He said, he, he said the things that Jesus did not say. He did not say that the world would know we are his disciples by our correct doctrine. He did not say that the world would know we are His disciples by the power of our words. He said that the world will know we are His disciples because of our love for one another. And this passage made me think of our annual marriage retreat. You know, this happens all throughout the body of Christ in all different congregations. And oftentimes we uh, we gather, you know, we have our annual marriage retreat. And uh, we recent, recently, we've had some wonderful gatherings with the ladies and the men from Clayton. And they're all out, many of them come here, and they're outside of our little congregation. But think of the friendship, think of the, the testimonies, think of the conversation that you have, the food of course, and the fellowship that you share. You see, the world sees this. They see how we live our lives. We're not just in our own little bubble, or we should not be. And so, love for others is a sovereign gift that God has given us. He's instructed us. Also, love for other believers is our responsibility, and it must increase. You say, I don't want it to increase. I'm already loving that person I don't like very well too much. (laughs) No, sorry, you don't get to do that. I don't get to do that. You don't get to do that. The Bible says we don't get to do that. And so he says, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. To excel. In other words, last week we talked about excelling in holiness. This week we're talking about excelling in brotherly love and concern for others. More and more. So again, we see Paul, he's sort of cheering them on as a coach. He says, you need to keep this going. He says, what you have going is wonderful. You need to keep it going, and you need to increase. But how do we increase? How do you increase your love for others? Well, the answer is, how do you gain anything that's of value? You exercise. You get to exercise your love for others. Warren Wiersbe said it this way, asking the question, how does God cause our love to increase more and more? And remember, God is the one who causes it, if we'll walk in obedience. He puts us into circumstances that force us to practice Christian love. Love is the circulatory system of the body of Christ. But if our spiritual muscles are not exercised, the circulation is impaired. The difficulties that we believe, believers have with one another are opportunities for us to grow in our love. This explains why Christians who have had the most problems with each other often end up loving one another deeply, much to the amazement of the world. Yeah, growing up, you know, you remember when you had a, had a friend in school, well, they weren't really your friend. They started out as your enemy and you end up having a school fight or whatever, you know, fisticuffs. And then years later you find that this is like one of your best friends. (laughs) Now hopefully you didn't have too many fights because you can't have too many best friends, right? You probably wouldn't have very many at all. But it's similar, you know. Sometimes we got to go through some stuff with one another and come out the other side stronger. And people will say, yeah, I get it. I get it. I've heard it explained that you and I, as living stones with plenty of rough edges, okay, God causes us to be smoothed out as He places us together using what? Heavenly sandpaper. That's how He smooths us out. And so, you know, if we just live our lives separate, and we live in our little bubbles, and we never see one another, uh, you know, circumstances happen, and we understand that. Many of us travel, you know, from other counties to come fellowship here together on Sundays. Many of us have job responsibilities and work and life situations that prevent us from being together as much as we would like to. But we should try. Unfortunately, the church is not known for its love today. I mentioned several weeks ago what most people think of Christians. The average person, asked the question in a, in a poll, well, what do you think of Christians? And the top three answers was they were judgmental, that they uh, were out of touch with reality, and that they were hypocritical. That's what the world, generally speaking. Now you could say, well yeah, we know the world is, is uh, already gone to hell in a hand- handbasket. Why should I feel bad about being a Christian? You could say it that way, but we shouldn't be saying it that way. The church is not known for its love. There's many reasons. Our present culture has definitely increasingly attempted to turn every institution, this is the reason why we are considered and and labeled the way we just described, is because our culture has tried to turn every institution ordained and created by God upside down. So we know that. What are those institutions? The family, the government, and even the church. And they've tried to change it into something not in accordance with God's design and prescribed in His Word but we're in this world, we're not of this world. So when the church seeks to adhere to God's design, it is sometimes unfairly labeled as what we just said, hateful, bigoted, judgmental, and out of touch with reality. But on the other hand, inside the church, we sometimes are more known for our divisions, our disagreements, our infighting, our church splits, our anger, or specific doctrines, than for our love. We can get really weird and divided about our belief and our faith, even in the Calvary Chapel movement sometimes. And so we just need to make sure that these things aren't the primary thing that defines us. Yes, doctrine's important. I totally get that. But we don't need to come across as holier than thou, do we? Both in attitude and words. Because that's when we bring on the label hypocrite. And so... Leaving that, we move forward here in verses 11 and 12. Walking to please God requires that we live an orderly life. You know, so far in this letter, Paul has acknowledged that love among the church, uh, that he's acknowledged that several times. But now he shifts gears to encourage them in another area. And this is where another area of witness. You, You ask yourself, how have I witnessed Jesus to others? Have I witnessed, have I been a good witness to the world? And here's what you're going to see. This is how you witness to the world. Verse 11, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life. That word aspire in the King James Version means to study. So what are you studying? What are, you, are you taking classes? Are you taking classes online? Are you attending school somewhere? Maybe you're in a school system right now. You, you can describe the subjects that you study. But for all of us, we should all be wanting to study. And what's that? To live a quiet life. And that goes against a lot of things, doesn't it? Our life we live noisy lives. We have a noisy world around us. In fact, uh, not only to aspire or study, it means that you actually strive hard to live a quiet life. It's, it's really, you know, uh, you can play with the words. You can try to understand the meaning. You can understand it. it doesn't mean that you never speak, obviously. But it's to be still, and to be quiet, and to be at rest. It's something we should aspire, that we should study to do. Many of us have difficulty being quiet. You've heard the story Winston Churchill's told one time of a man who was always chattering. Sir Winston, he chirped, I haven't told you about my grandchildren yet. And for that, Churchill answered, I am deeply grateful. Sometimes we just, you know, we let it go. We, we, we bring it on. We just... So, but there's many, many good reasons to be quiet. Um, in the situation with the Thessalonians, and this is a good lesson for us about wisdom and discernment. They had already, um, because they became Christians in this pagan culture, they had already, like, you know, the book of Acts says the apostles turned the world upside down. And what happened, what they mean is that the social and the religious and even civic obligations were no longer being done by the Christians. They they kind of pulled away from that, because it was such a pagan culture. And so this was causing a lot of disruption in the city. And when you read the book of Acts, you see there's riots everywhere they go. Because this is such a radical change. And Paul urges them not to make the matters worse. And you say, wait a minute, I thought Paul was the most bold apostle of them all. He was never afraid to speak out for Christ. You know what, sometimes he used discretion. And he encouraged them, don't make matters worse. In fact, he had to be taken out of the city of Thessalonica by night, by the, the darkness, to avoid, you know, more more strife and, and riots in that city. So there are reasons, many good reasons, to live a quiet life. And just, you know, put it put it into your heart and your desire to be still before the Lord and let Him explain that to you. Another way... To lead a quiet life, however, Paul goes on, and as an extension to that thought, he says that you and I are to mind your own business. You get to say that in the Bible. You know how that could be a very rude thing to say to somebody. But you and I, hopefully you're standing in front of a mirror when you say it. You and I need to, to mind our own business. In other words, worry about your own things. Mind your own beeswax. Now this, again, especially does not carry the idea of not speaking or being restful, but of not, listen, not intruding into the lives of other people, especially brothers and sisters in the faith, and so becoming a burden to them. And I have done that recently. I won't mention names, but I have, in my own way, intruded a little bit too far into the life of people that I love dearly. And I have, in some ways, become a burden to them. And so we need to watch that. You and I need to watch that, to live quiet lives and be peaceful and mind our own business sometimes. The next thing he says is, you are to labor, you and I are to labor with your own hands, to work with your own hands. You know, for the most part, the Greek culture, the Greco-Roman culture, they had reached a point in their society where they despised manual labor. That's why half the people in the population were literally slaves, because they're the only ones who would do the work. Think about that in our modern context. Who wants to pick the crops anymore? Who wants to do the menial tasks anymore in our context? Well, in that Greek culture, they looked down at manual labor. And he says, use your own hands, work with your own hands. Now, why is he saying this? Well, it's possible, and it ties into their concern about the rapture and the second coming of Christ because a lot of them were getting nervous. They're like, well, we don't understand this. And it is really, most most commentators will tell you, it's very possible that Christians in Thessalonica had started to develop the bad habit of quitting their jobs, and just kind of like pulling away, and not doing their part in society. And that's not a healthy thing. And what ends up happening is now that they're a family, and it's just a serious thing to become a Christian in that day. You've become a part of something. All your relatives and your everything else you may have lost because of your faith. Now you're putting a burden on one another within the church because you refuse to work. You refuse to support yourself when you're able to do so. And so Paul urges them to work with their own hands as we commanded you, You know, our response to this command of brotherly love, and that's what we're being told to do, can be very hazardous when we talk about extremes. We either fail to love others enough, or we love in an unhealthy way. Lacking love towards one another is simply not taking the time to look for ways to show love. We do. <laughs> I know you still love us. I still you guys. It's all good. (laughs) Uh, That's okay. Just set it. You you don't have to put it back up. That's okay. (laughs) Uh, It's Christmas stuff. But looking for ways to take the time to show. That we love and care for one another. A lot of times we lack in that area. In our day, it's a phone call or a text. Sometimes that's just more than enough. Even more sacrificially, you may help someone in their home with their needs in their home. You may provide meals or simply spend time with them in fellowship. We kind of know that. Um, But, you know, there's always more room for that. But what about the unhealthy excessive love towards others. What are we talking about there? You know, in the name of love we can sometimes allow people to be irresponsible and we can encourage poor behavior. And this is why Paul is so adamant about laboring with their own hands. Uh, John Stott explained it this way. He said, "True, it is an expression of love to support others who are in need, but it is also an expression of love to support ourselves so that as not to need to be supported by others." We often do not consider that our own work is an expression of love to others because we do not need to be supported by them. Those of you here in the, uh, I will say, older generation, you know what I'm talking about, perhaps. We meet, uh, in our day, we've got, you know, it seems like in our day, we have no problem receiving whatever we can get from the government. But people in the older generation, uh, they would say, no, I'll take care of myself. And the reason they would refuse that you would give them something is because they felt very strongly about this. And so uh, we need to consider our own expression of love towards others in the fact that we are able to take care of ourselves. That's what he's saying. The problem of idleness and irresponsible behavior will be brought up again when we we get into chapter 5 and in the second letter to the Thessalonians. So this issue is going to come back. Now, not only are some in the church unable to work, but some are busybodies, and by doing so they make it hard for others who are working to do their jobs. And we know this in our society, that it's causing a problem. You have an increasing number of people who will not work and simply choose to live off of the taxpayer. It doesn't go down. It is not decreasing in our country, it is going up every year. And it's going to eventually cause our country to collapse, just like it did historically with the Roman Empire. You know, when it's ha- when it's going to happen, I don't know. But it's going to, if we keep going in the direction we're going with our fiscal policies as a country, it's going to end up collapsing at some point. And so there's a biblical reason why we should be responsible. And then in verse 12, we need to see that we need to be concerned about our testimony, even in financial matters that we need to be concerned about that. He says that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. So first of all, working, your job, the job that you do is a witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You might have heard the, the line. It goes like this. My wife is going to have plastic surgery, a man said to his friend. So I'm taking away all of her credit cards. That that didn't go very well. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to repeat it. But how easy is it to purchase things we do not need with money we do not have and then lose our own credit. And this is the Christmas season and I know the pressure. But we're trying to be a good Christian witness. And he says that you may walk properly towards those on the outside. Uh, you know, this, this is a contrast. This is what people should see in us. They're walking to see if we live a quiet life. They want to see if we live in harmony with others, that we're responsible. Peter Hubbard said this, diligence decorates the gospel, but laziness disguises it. Diligence decorates the gospel. One of the primary ways that God gives us a chance to witness is our diligence and our careful and persistent work effort. People see the hard work that you do, wherever you're at, and they know that you're a Christian, and they see that, and that is a powerful witness. You may never, you know, have the opportunity to give them the gospel message. You may never have even the opportunity to pray with them. But they can, if, you, if they know, eventually they get to know you, that you're a believer, that your hard work is a witness It's been pointed out that Paul spent much of his time working as a tent maker. And we we tend to think Paul was always out on the street preaching, but he was working. And these were long hours spent on the workbench. And it would have provided him plenty of opportunity to share the gospel. And you know that Paul would have done so. The point is that most believers are called to live and work in the same manner as others so that non-Christians can see you how you live and how you work. And that's your witnesses. That's your witness. And when you've loved and served your neighbor, your co-workers, or your bosses, there does tend to be a measure of respect and sometimes, sometimes an opportunity to invite them to church, to pray for them, or even to hear the gospel he says at the end of that verse, he says that you're to uh, work that you may lack nothing. In other words, you're working, like I said earlier, to avoid being a burden on others. Now is this a disguise for living the good life to accumulate wealth and self-gratification? Of course not. That goes against all the things that the Bible teaches. What Paul is referring to stems from the problem he's been Alluding to, and that is that too many brothers and sisters in the church have taken advantage of the good graces of others by not working to support themselves. Here's the point, writes uh, James Grant. If we live in a way that reflects brotherly love, it will be obvious to the people we come in contact with in our culture. We will not have to loudly proclaim our faith to outsiders, but they will see our lives. In the city of Thessalonica, everyone would have noticed the change of lives in these Christians. They didn't participate in religious ceremonies and sexual immorality in the pagan temples anymore. They didn't cheat each other or strangers. They worked hard, they took care of each other, and they loved each other. If you want your faith to be evident to those around you, Paul says, live in this sacrificial way, a way that reflects the love of Jesus to other people. So as we close today, as we review this section, we see how practical the Christian walk really is. As obedient brothers and sisters in the Lord, we will have a holy life. We will abstain from sexual sin. We will live a harmonious life by loving our brothers and sisters. We will live an honest life by working with our hands and not meddling into the affairs of others. And when unsaved people see Christ magnified in this kind of life, says one writer, they will either oppose it with envy or desire to have it for themselves. But either way, God is glorified. Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you for our time today. Our, our message today is, I pray, is timely for each and every one of us, Lord, as a reminder of our call, Lord, that we are called to increase in our love, and our care for one another. We are called to walk in harmony. We are called to be a light that shines in the darkest places of our world and our communities. So thank you, Lord, for giving us your word to us today. Thank you for the fellowship that you bring among us, Lord. Thank you for instructing us, Lord, and and teaching us how to love one another. And may it be something that we continue to exercise. May we take it as a personal challenge to lay our lives down even more and ever more so Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit we pray this in Jesus name and all God's people said amen thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series join us next week as we continue through the Bible book by book verse by verse line by line God bless